Ciao, can I give you a big sell on something? A big sell? Big sell. Okay. Party Girl, best film you've never seen. It's certainly a film I've never seen. Yeah. Has it been on your list? Are you aware of it? Because I wasn't aware of it until about two weeks ago. Um, I was aware of it, but I think I probably did get it confused with Party Monster, which unbelievably I also have not seen. Also but seen. I think they're both about like nightlife, Yeah, basically. Yeah, well, basically. <laughs> quote-unquote nightlife um but yeah party, party, party girl is girl. big time about nightlife i stumbled across it because me and Elle have just like kind of accidentally found ourselves on this run of watching loads of movies with parker posey including <laughs> bowie's afraid which i had no idea she makes a very raunchy cameo oh, yeah, in. i've not seen that either it's worth watching it's two-thirds of a good film i'd say three popcorns three i gave it three three and a half on letterboxd Oh, yeah. Anyway, we found that there is a big Parker Posey special on Criterion with like about 14 different movies. So we just watched the first one that was on there, which is Party Girl. And oh, my God, what a film. Okay, I'm listening. I just it's so up your street. It's like what what does that entail? What do you think that entails? Right. (laughs) Because it is such a great I mean, I wasn't there, but the vibe I get it is such a great such a great kind of like time capsule to like what seems like an actual very genuine portrayal of 90s New York nightlife by mm. people who were there. Mm-hmm. Soundtrack is amazing. It's all like Masters at Work, Kashmir, but also like, you know, Tom Tom Club, stuff like that. Like it seems like a very genuine portrayal of what was playing in the clubs then. Mm-hmm. Right down to actually, and this is something, you know, we ended up speaking about with Nick Boyd about like the actual diversity of music that's played in the clubs. Like there's a whole section where a DJ gets told off for playing too much house and stuff like that. (laughs) So it stars Parker Posey, who is just like a New York nightlife kid, like running around, figuring out the world, ends up living with a random DJ. The opening scene is her being arrested at a party and she can't pay the DJ for playing. So he's like, (laughs) well, I've got nowhere to stay. So she just like chucks him her keys. So it's her and this DJ living together, just kind of figuring nightlife out. Within five minutes of the film, there's an extended section where the DJ explains clanging oh my God. through like his recollection of a DJ anxiety dream. Wow. Where he's talking about how he can't perform, pardon the expression, and like he's like, and the records are drifting out and the beats are out of time and da-da-da. Just this amazing moment where like Parker Posey's trying to like vogue with someone or they're voguing <laughs> and she's just kind of doing all these like wild facial expressions and standing still while they're bouncing around her. Why... So was this like, how how underground and independent was this film? Was, was it successful? I don't know. Because it I, sounds very indie movie, very it's very It's very clearly like a low budget indie movie. Sure. It doesn't seem like a film that ends up on the usual uh, lists of rave related movies either. Possibly. No, 100%. Like mm. I said, I'd never heard of it. And I kind of came away from it being like, this feels to me like a more genuine mm. time capsule to like the epicenter of like 90s dance music than a lot of the films that are talked about in that way mm. also interesting tidbit the first ever film to be premiered on the internet okay that that's and when you watch when you watch like the it. opening credits like it makes sense it look <laughs> it looks like someone's basically animated clip art <laughs> but yeah huge recommend i've watched it twice in the last week i think at some point we should do a bit of a 
rave-related movie rundown collection, whatever, because there are some there are some questionable lists out there. There was a very questionable <laughs> list recently. We won't get into that. I think but, we can do better though, and yeah, I, I, I know that there are more out there. And the ones that I've seen, almost the worse they are. Sometimes the more I love them, and some of the ones that have had the most um, sort of industry praise or kind of critical praise I have found the least tolerable like yeah. that film Eden I don't yeah ge- you've been banging the Eden I have a, drum a for a while. I problem remember that. with that film I've not for so it. many reasons I think that's a bad film but anyway we should we should do an extended run of we that. should what would be um, your go-to if we were if we were to put together a, a an IRL film club doubleheader and I pick mm. party girl which I do want to get in I'm not saying it's like a well-written film but just as as a vibe, yeah. Um, more on that in future episodes. It's pretty perfect. Well, I also I often talk about this film called Groove, um, which is from two thousand and is set in San Francisco, and it's about a night in the life thing, uh, kind of different cast of characters who come together at a warehouse party, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's pretty budget, but it's obviously made by people who really love raving and have been to a rave yeah. and can kind of try to put that experience on film which is usually done quite badly yeah um and uh it has a very awkward cameo among some already fairly secondary acting by the dj who is playing the night who is john digweed oh right okay <laughs> and he kind of comes on at the end and does and sort of exchanges like one line with someone is like what's the line it's literally like you know cool cheers mate or you know it's like a little fist bumpy moment or something with the people who are saying like oh it's an amazing set man and he's like yes nice one geese or something and it just did so awkward but it's just a quite innocent evocation I think Mm. of raving it's not like a good film again but I I just think it's quite sweet and you know someone does their first pill and it's all just like yeah that's the other thing about Partygo actually manages to do which feels like one of the rarest things in cinema like a pill scene well yeah i always have a problem with when taking drugs on telly or in film is shown as there'll always be this weird thing where like someone else will put the pill on somebody's in the middle of their tongue have you ever done that no i've never done that i don't think i've ever seen anyone do that (laughs) that would be a stupid thing to do if you've ever taken i was once at fabric and some random brazilian dude offered me poppers and i said yes because obviously yeah and he poured them on his forearm it was bonkers he like held out his forearm like his friends all (gasps) gathered around as as well like kind of like pigs eating from one trough he poured these poppers on his forearm and everyone just sniffed his arm that's fucking stupid fucking bonkers fucking stupid yeah yeah, well party girl we should start some sort of uh, party girl groove double header yeah party girl groove I'm down talking of yeah talking of party girls but also talking about (laughs) films yes this is a film not a film-heavy episode. Film-loving film, party a girl. Film, yeah. Party-loving film girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who have we got? We're joined today by Frankie DeCaser Hutchinson. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, someone we have wanted to have on the pod since the very start, actually. Mm. We were meant to record this in London last year, and then I got COVID, and we had to reschedule. And obviously, Frankie is a very busy person, has a festival that is literally happening next week in Dweller. Or probably in no, no will it no, be in the past will, by the time this comes no, out? No, we'll air this, we'll oh, air right, this week okay, before yeah. Dweller. But it might be in the past by the time you listen to it. True, true. A little bit of insight into the podcast making business for you there, <laughs> dear listeners. Um anyway, point being, Frankie's a very busy woman. Uh but yeah, we managed to pin her down for a really, really fun chat. 
Yeah. I feel like we peeled off some layers and had some good good chats. Yeah. Talked about like her life at university and things that I feel I'm I'm not too sure. Well you she's done a lot of press, hasn't she, in the past? But I don't feel like you know, it it felt like a fresher yeah. take on a lot of that stuff because she's obviously been in the industry for a while. I've done so and, much. Yeah, and the first wave of of the disc woman uh hype, if you like, was a while ago now. So I think that's something that we kind of want to do on no tags is maybe speak to people when they're not in their sort of peak talking to press moment when they've maybe seen a few more things and have their bearings more and and yeah perhaps have some critical reflections but it was also a great opportunity to talk at further length about films <laughs> yeah there's a lot of films but we also get into dweller the kind of origins of the festival we get into the Discwoman story. Um, and this Criterion collection. Yes, I mean. sh- which we should plug. Um, yeah. Uh, the Dweller Criterion The Dweller Criterion Collection. collection. Um, one of the few cool brand partnerships in dance music. <laughs> <laughs> one of the few brand partnerships in dance music we can learn something from. Actually, maybe there's a lot that we can learn stuff from. What brand would you most like to partner with? No tags, Tom. God, I don't know. I feel like I've been drinking a lot of Tenzing in the studio. You, yeah, you, you're always... You're always sort of brandishing some sort of vitamin water or kombucha. Do you know what? I, I actually reckon Tenzing would. You reckon? Yeah. Should we hit them up? No, but okay. we could. could I'd I feel like they're on the cusp of someone that would be like, let's throw money at a funny little podcast. Well, like Red, you know, I'll be amazed not there anymore, hey now, right? Someone, hey now. <laughs> someone needs to pick up that mantle. Uh, anyway, Frankie, great guest. Um yeah, a, 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 a great iconic figure of dance music of our time, quite frankly. So, yeah. 100%. Let's get so, stuck in. And as ever, thank you to SRP Studios in Soho, London, for letting us record. Uh, I will, sorry, I keep I keep pressing the wrong button to um, unmute myself. <laughs> this is real fucking boomer hours, isn't it, Jesus? <laughs> That's probably as good as intro as uh, any. Frankie, welcome to the podcast. Hello. How are you? How's it going? How's everything in New York? It's snowing here. I'm I'm okay. Yeah, I'm having a mentally uh, stable week. Okay. <laughs> yes. Are you deep in like dweller prep at the moment? I am. Yeah, but I feel surprisingly chill. So you've caught me on a on a good day. So um, yeah. Yeah. I've heard running festivals is famously really chill. And easy, it's, it's, so yeah, checks it's, out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's why I'm like, something's about to go wrong. But, you know, something goes wrong. It goes wrong. What can I do? So, as a trio of, with a trio of letterbox power users in here, um, <laughs> I want to talk about the Criterion Partnership first. Awesome. Cool. Like, the, the coolest brand part, like... It's so rare to see a brand partnership pop up on the timeline and not think that's kind of lame. That happens mm-hmm. a lot of time. <laughs> um, but even rarer to be like, this is so cool. And right. yeah, blew me away. Uh, tell us about it. Um, I mean, you know, I, I've always like fantasized about working in film and not music but you know this is the cards I was dealt I suppose (laughs) so it's nice to be able to combine you know what I'm doing now with um another love of mine uh 
and uh, Ash Clark, who works over at Criterion. Uh, we actually went to university together in England, and it was just a coincidence. They ended up working there, and I was like, oh, would you be interested? We actually tried to do something the year before, but it didn't line up. Um, and then so they were really up for it. And then Ryan Clark, who I work with, uh, Dweller, he's one of the curators. He also is the like main editor of the blog. Um, he has so many like amazing, he's like even well, more well-researched in the kind of the areas of like music and film than me. So it was really, he largely created it alongside Sean. Um, who they do they they both do the education portion of Dweller together and uh, they they largely they largely programmed the criteria and stuff so it was really great uh, so it's like I kind of you know set up the collaboration then passed it off to those who I think would probably curate it best and then that's kind of how it came to be I honestly wasn't really you know you do these things but you when you're like in a kind of a your own world, create, curating these things, you actually stop, you don't really think about how it's going to reach others until it comes out. And you're like, oh, people are into this. I was like, wow, this is cool. This is actually so cool. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's what happened. That's what happened. So I was having a look at the list of films. Um, I mean, not all of the films are about black dance music you know in the sense that um there's like there's a documentary about Larry Levan there's this sort of document of Jeff Mills in the mix but especially some of the short films are maybe more like kind of art film that you would see in a, a gallery perhaps um maybe it'd be great to hear you explain some of the kind of connecting tissue between them perhaps I think when we were kind of thinking about this um we didn't want it to be so literal as being kind of a history of dance and like that kind of thing, because, you know, Dweller is so, uh, I hate to say multifaceted, but it kind of is in the way that it's like the way people are connected. So we wanted to kind of reflect that in the curation of the movies too. Um, like for instance, um, the mo the short uh, trial period by Kiernan Francis is like, um, it's a great short film kind of about, you know, queer kids and nightlife. And um, like, it's like a, like a fiction piece, like contextualized in nightlife, you know? So it's like not talking about the history of dance, but it's like the culmination of where dance has led us to is these moments in like, the afters and like stuff like that. So I don't, it's like quite hard to hard for me to kind of uh, articulate, but I, but we didn't want it. We just did not want it to be like dance started here and now we're here, but like more like everybody has such um, different connections and expressions within this like very vast medium. And like, this is, and this is it basically. Um, no, definitely. It's, it's very much also about, people yeah, I guess like exactly. a lot of the short films are kind of personal really intimate projects yeah a hundred percent like a lot of things like when we do Dweller are quite like visceral like we feel things and that's how we kind of like book and create stuff or we like have like strong like visions for things and that's what leads us to create it rather than like trying to do something that is like 
um, we need to educate people on this, this and this. Like, that's not kind of how we approach things. But that does end up being something that happens, like a byproduct of kind of how we do stuff. Like, people do learn things. I mean, we do have very literal materials on our site, like the blog and stuff. But I think when it comes to, like, us creating events and, like, even a partnership like this, um, we want it to be have a slight like romance and like poetry to it rather than it being so like i don't know we want to teach you things and stuff like that well maybe this is a good opportunity to zoom out a little on dweller then so like let's map out the project a little bit like when when did you have the idea to create it and and i guess what was the what were the kind of urges behind it like was it a response to something in particular or was it something you'd want been wanting to do for a long time I mean, I'd love to know a bit more about, like, the background behind you starting it. Um, well, it definitely comes from a deeply personal place, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, to put it simply, like, you know, as a, as a black person in this scene, you do react quite strongly to not seeing black people being represented in club culture. And, like, you know, but for me, it was like... I didn't even know black people were like responsible for this shit in the first place. So there was a really big learning curve for me to like come to terms with. Um, so with that comes a lot of rage, you know, <laughs> you're like pissed off. Um, and like, I want to settle my scores and I want justice. That's how I'm kind of like. So Dweller is kind of like seeking justice, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and trying to um, make something that's our own. Um, I was speaking about this yesterday, actually, with Enyo, who also co-curates Dweller and is a programmer as well. And I was like, this is, it's so sick for us because it's something that a lot of white people can't touch. And that feels really, um, yeah, that feels like justice, I guess. <laughs> um, so there's something really... I don't know, exciting about that, um, to feel like you have a sense of ownership over something um, that, you know, where I started, I didn't even know we even owned in the first place, you know, I mean, I use the word owned loosely, yeah. but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. um, you know, it's just, it's a quite, it's quite a trippy, trippy experience, um, not knowing something your whole life and then being bombarded with all of this like fucking cool shit that you wish you knew from a younger age. Um, and that shit, this motivates me, you know, like, I mean, it's, you know, reflective in other work I've done too. Like, I just, I don't like, uh, I don't like people not getting credit for what they deserve to get credit for, ultimately. And this is, um, definitely driven from that place. But, you know, I think a lot of the rage has passed for me. Um, now I kind of live in it and I have my own rage towards the only thing, the only thing I think I do, you know, so, um, uh, that, that, that necessarily isn't the driving factor as much anymore. Um, but rather just trying to maintain, uh, an ecosystem that, that, that we can enjoy. Um, what has been the best dweller moment so far? I guess I'd quite like to hear from you about, the kind of atmosphere that's generated at Dweller event and, and in what ways that might be different to any other kind of club event you'd be at? Ooh, so, so many moments, but 
Um, I like to talk about this moment. So the first year we did, it was just at Bossa Nova. And I don't think we, we paid, maybe we only paid guarantees on like the Friday and the Saturday. So everyone was doing it for like a percentage of the bar. And it was like, you know, really like there was no, no money or production or anything, but like people were just like really up for it. So that was such a unique energy, you know, it, it, now it's grown. It, there's expectations that come with what you do, which uh, can be, can be quite challenging. Um, so it's, it's weird while it's happy to grow. It's also, uh, yeah, it's a tough thing to adapt to too. So some of the sort of earlier memories or like the sort of feelings of creating something that everyone is just like locked in for, like regardless of what the production's gonna be, regardless of what I'm gonna get paid, just this like, let's fucking do it, let's go. Like, you can't really like replicate that. It's just like a moment in time. So I always hold on to that spirit. And I think that spirit still lives within the festival a lot. Um, so in the second year we introduced nowadays as a venue, like I had made it a goal for myself to go to every single thing, which mean, means that I met, missed everything at the same time. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and uh, I remember I arrived at nowadays and Stingray was playing there and I arrived right when he finished. So I missed the whole set. And um, <laughs> all I see is like, uh, Juliana Huxtable like emerging from the dance floor like oh my god <laughs> and I was like what <laughs> she's like this is incredible like just like this expression of just like just like I don't know it was like catharsis and just like complete like she had an exorcism like it was like I was like whoa like I think what kind of always sticks with me is just how much joy people experience there um and that isn't something you know yes we like create this whole festival but it's definitely like i think that definitely happens just it's created by everybody who is there and how much they want this to happen like i think that is maybe the unique energy of what it is is that like there is so few spaces like this that when we see each other there, it's like, happy dweller, like people go around and say that there's this like need. And so people just feel joy. I don't know how else to describe it. So it's hard to really pinpoint one moment, but that just really sticks out to me as like, uh, I don't know, it just defines, defines the feeling and experience of it, I guess. Um, yeah, it's funny when I was in New York last year and I went to a few of the dweller events, the the main memory I remember is seeing RP Boo, like just footworking at the front while Black oh, Rage awesome. were playing with like <laughs> the biggest smile on his face. And it was, oh, it felt like yeah. a microcosm of kind of the whole thing. Like it was a really beautiful moment. Mm, totally, totally. It's, it's, I love that. I love that. I love that. That was so sweet. That was so sweet. Um, yeah, there's like stuff like that. Exactly. So like when, when we had Jeff Mills last year, he when he when he came to like education bit and it was just like chilling in the crowd, you know, like that's kind of what we want to create. This kind of get rid of this sort of like line between um, people you look up to, etc. But like like we're all let's just immerse together in this way. Um, I'm like really struggling with words, but I think you get it because I'm like, it's yeah, a feeling, guys. I don't know how to describe feelings, okay? Um, I don't know. I think, I think largely what I'm trying to get at is like the scene in general feels so like 
like different segre segregations in it, I guess. Like, uh, and it's definitely based on a lot to do with like class and wealth and status and all this kind of thing. And everything we do with Dweller, we kind of want to just like push against all of that, I guess. So we want to work with people who want to be around people. We want to work with people who don't want to like, don't do it because they want to be like looking down on people, I guess, like, or, or, or into being like looked up to or something like this. We kind of want to create a conversation, a more like fluid atmosphere where people can, you know, sit next to Jeff Mills in a talk and it's like, whatever. That's kind of like what we want. <laughs> Um, but I don't think anyone was like, whatever, you know, but still, that's what we want. <laughs> I mean, Jeff's a special case, right? Like... You know, it's a special case, but it was kind of really chill, you know, people were like, oh, it was just so chill, you know, and it's like, exactly, that's what it should be, and it should be comfortable for everybody there, where they shouldn't feel like, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not, you, I feel like you kind of maybe know what I'm getting at, but it's really yeah, hard to 100%. explain <laughs> and articulate, but yeah. No, no, 100%. Um, and like, honestly, when I was there, like, you could feel that in the room. Like, I overheard people saying the Happy Dweller thing. And I was like, wow, like, it was really <laughs> oh, like a special room to be in. Um, awesome. What's the plan for this year's like, like, is it a scale up of what's happened before? Or, or how's it? I guess, what's the plan? And how's it going to differ from kind of previous years or last year? You know, I think it's, it's really hard not to scale up every year, you know, because we just have more and more ideas. And then there's also just like more and more artists who want to play. Um, I think this year, last year we had maybe 50 or 60. This year it's like almost close to 80. So it's really a lot of people. Um, and but I but but I think there has to be like a like a ceiling to it. Like I don't think we can just like grow and grow and grow and grow. I mean, there's it's so hard to maintain it. Um, so that's kind of one kind of been the, some of the bigger conversations this year. Like how do we kind of retain its kind of intimacy and you know what I'm talking about before of like this sort of integration of all these different people and like uh, uh, but remain this kind of like cute family affair. Um, uh, you know you're you're straddling like a straddling a fine line there and like with so much growth and publicity like comes all these different people who want to be involved and like what does that do to the event and all these really really exhausting questions that I'm really tired of I just want to like have a nice festival you know but it's hard to ignore these pressures that are coming in you know so um, this year, yeah, we just we want to we're introducing a couple of different new genres. Um, so we're excited to unveil those two. And I think to go back to your like previous point, it's like the, the, I think there's this big fallacy in like the live music industry that you always have to scale up and you always have to scale up and sell mm -hmm. more tickets and more tickets. And like, yeah, there's actually like such a virtue in finding that sweet spot. I think whether right. it's a festival or a club night, whatever, right. it's like this is actually like the optimum size we want to be for to kind of express what we want to express and to kind of do our vision justice. And like, yeah, I think a lot of people lose sight of that, and it's it's super important to kind of try and find that and have it in mind. I think exactly, and it's like I try and like imagine Dweller as like an electric zoo or something like this. <laughs> like I thought about it in like. 
an EDM scale capacity or something like this? Like, what would this be? You know, just like you know, my, my mind wonders, like, and I just don't think it would translate into that scale, actually. Um, so whilst it might be an interesting concept to some to, like, make it a huge, huger thing, like, it's... Uh, I don't think it could retain the same thing that it has, you know. Even, like, last year we had many people, like, there was lots of talk about how many white people are at the festival and, like, you know, it seems, it's like a, kind of an inevitable, like, thing that's going to happen around this kind of festival, you know. So um, imagine if we do it, at, do an EDM scale one. It's like, uh, well, we've definitely lost our core audience. Um, so <laughs> you gotta be, yeah. you gotta really be thinking about, uh, these things. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's the audience. It's also the space, right? Like it needs to be a space that people can feel comfortable right. in. And like, I, I'm not even sure it's possible to do that full stop I don't think when so. you scale up that high to like an EDC level or whatever. I completely agree. Yeah. I don't think so. So I feel compelled to mention, uh, some dance music headlines this week. <laughs> uh, I know <laughs> oh, that you, you Dweller, Dweller cancelled the Bergheim event that was coming up. Mm -hmm. And I just want to know a bit about why you took that decision. I'm interested as well in whether it was specifically to do with Bergheim or if it was to do with this Strike Germany uh, artist boycott of Germany that's happening. Maybe you could just shed some light on that decision because it can't have been easy to cancel, decide to cancel something like that. Well, actually, it was easy, um, <laughs> to be honest. Um, it was a really easy decision. <laughs> Correct to make. answer. But it fact, happened. Yeah. <laughs> it happened. It wasn't. It wasn't to do with Bergheim, and it wasn't. To, it wasn't attributed to Strike Germany. We made the decision in like October when this stuff happened because we saw the kind of immediate reaction that um, pro-Palestine people in Germany were receiving from, you know, German police, government, whatever you say, institutions, sort of like this high level, like for lack of a better term, like cancelling of these artists, like news spreads about friends who are pro I mean, it was just like the onslaught. And it just like, I mean, it just came up in me that like, I can't actually imagine us throwing are all black party at Bergheim. I just couldn't see it. Like, it, I cannot be in that place doing this thing there. Um, so we just made the call. I was like, I, there's no, it's just not going to happen unless there's some kind of shift. Like, but it's just, it's really trippy, honestly, to think about like where we were a year ago and like how excited we were about this and like doing it and like how it felt like the right thing to do. And just one year later, it feels like absolutely the wrong decision to make. Like we cannot like um, bring a whole bunch of black people into a space, into like uh, be advocating for like a country that is, um, uh, yeah, um, adopting quite uh, fascist policies uh, at the moment. So um, it felt, you know, and, you know, I think there's people who say you could say the same thing about America. I mean, uh, Sure, but I think there's the, the yeah, but I mean I live here, so I guess that's the difference. <laughs> um, yeah, what are you meant so, to do, right? <laughs> right, exactly. So <laughs> this is where I live, um, but but I also would encourage people to do that if they don't want to come here. You know what I mean? Like if that's the, that's the line you want to draw, you should draw it. Like I think it's important for you to do what feels right, and that's what felt right for us. So you know when we 
when we saw the strike Germany thing pop up, like I was like, hell yeah, because when they passed that law about like having to like pledge allegiance basically to Israel, um, I was, I mean, it's just astonishing, honestly, like um, the level of control there. Um, yeah, it's, it's really fucking sad. Uh, and it's, and it's sad that so many artists um, are forced to make that decision for themselves right now. And it's usually hits artists who aren't as rich and wealthy in the scene who make these hard decisions as well, you know? So, um, yeah, it just really, really, it really sucks. It's a really curious division in that scene as well, where you realise that, in fact, there's a kind of, I mean, of course, there are multiple scenes within any city, but it does bring to the fore the fact that there is a kind of largely, yeah, white German old guard and the left in Germany is, you know, they're just brought up to be just staunchly defensive of Israel and simply can't get their heads around this issue. And then you have this massive uh, uh, international um, expat slash migrant uh, community of people who who just see it as obvious. And maybe this is just the first time it's really, really been pushed to the fore like that. And suddenly you look around and you're like, well, whose side are you on? And it's so, it's so unbelievably divisive. I mean, I can't imagine, I, I, I'm getting the impression for people who live there that it's just actually really stressful and, and depressing, you know? I don't know. I think I'm still kind of just like in astonishment about it all. Um, so I find it hard to articulate, but I do know where I stand on this and that's really clear to me. So, you know, not doing something there is the best decision we made. And it seems so seeing as how things have gone, because this was we made this decision before that law was even in place. So the fact, you know, you you kind of just get a sense that these things are going to kind of snowball and get worse. So um... I was thinking a bit about Berlin as a kind of global capital of clubbing. Um you know, it's changed a lot in the last maybe six or seven years, I think, really like broken out of the techno mold uh, to an extent. Um, but I think it's interesting that its reputation as a kind of cool, progressive, cosmopolitan global city is actually quite frequently challenged by particularly like reported experiences of um, people of color, like artists, DJs who go there and yeah. have a completely different experience of being in the city than I do when I go there and have my like techno tourist weekend. Um, and I was actually just wondering what your experience has been generally of bringing artists to Berlin. You mean across disc women and stuff like this or just yeah. in general? It's a, it's a mixed bag. You know, I've had some of the best times of my life in Berlin as of many of my artists, you know, um, it's it has a really meaningful place. Uh, I've met so many people. I built many relationships there. Um, and I've been given many opportunities there too. Um, so it's definitely a place that has a that is in my heart. Um, you know. That being said, there is you're confronted. You know, it's like living in New York. I don't, on a personal level, I don't feel like 
perceived or people are even looking at me or interested in looking at me or whatever you know in 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 berlin there's definitely a switch um you stand out you stick out so just like obvious things like that affect how you move through a place you know you feel way more visible and that that uh, yeah i mean that changes a lot that's you know the difference between experience between me and you you know so um I think that would that definitely applies to the artists I've worked with too. I think we can all uh, recount uh, a racist incident we've had on the street, in the club, on the transport, or something like that. I mean, it's so common that it's like, I don't know, when you when you've lived in, you know, I'm I'm 36 now, and you've you've lived in the skin for that long, it's kind of like like everyday shit, you know. Um, so whilst it but so it never like prevented me from coming back obviously but um it's tiring feeling so visible i would say yeah and such a yeah. extreme contrast to the obviously also quite like freeing experiences of being in clubs there and how much freer they are than clubs elsewhere in some way right and it's like quite an irony isn't like, it oh, yeah yeah right yeah. right it's it's really it's really ironic because I mean, clubbing in Berlin is like some of the best clubbing I've done. Like I've I've had an incredible, <laughs> you've incredibly euphoric experiences. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I don't know, like just out of this world, like times. Um, and then you walk outside and you're like, oh, <laughs> that doesn't match what just happened inside. Um, but yeah, I'd say that a lot of it, I think, is exhaustion. I'm getting tired of kind of like really basic perceptions of your identity, you know? I think that is what is more it's what it's about rather than people kind of like you know, calling you the n-word or like something like that. That doesn't really that hasn't really happened for me like there or something like that. I haven't been uh called derogatory statements or something like this, but it's like um the way people try to connect with you by like pulling out your differences. How do you do your hair? Like stuff like this where you're just like, girl, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm like, if you were in New York, you wouldn't last five minutes, you know, things <laughs> like this, <laughs> you know? So I think that that, I think it's the repetitiveness of that kind of, um, the way you're kind of coded there, it becomes what is tiring. And yeah. at least that's my experience. I think there's definitely people who are, way more visible than even I am and I think that comes with its own dangers and violence too you know so um I can only speak for me but I can say for the artists that I've worked with there um and even like you know Dweller Burkind I think we all kind of shared a certain exhaustion in the way that like we feel and feel like we're being like seen and feel like we're being judged and like it's just a collective like kind of consciousness of like understanding that experience and um like if you you know after certain um artists i know black artists i know have like done touring europe they're just so fucking tired and just want to come home to new york if yeah. they live there of course because it's like done um you just get so over it uh, but then but then you like miss the hedonism of it so you're excited to go back and then you go back and you're like wait get me the fuck out of it you know so it's like this it's like this push and pull um not that it's the priority here but i do wonder what this does long term to berlin as like 
a dance music city and like a place that people from the US and the UK from across Europe whatever see as like just a place to go you know a place yeah. to go where it's viable to be an artist I mean I'm going to check whether he's comfortable with me saying this but like a mutual friend of ours like Anthony Witchcraft I was with him in London after he played Burgine last which I think was October um and he was buzzing and he was like I'm going to move to Berlin next year like I feel my music makes a ton of sense here it just feels like the right thing for me to do and then I you know I speak to him pretty regularly and he's just like what the fuck was I thinking like I just it's completely unfeasible for me to do this now and like I said, it's not the priority, but I do wonder what this does to Berlin long term as that destination that artists feel like they can move there and make a living off their art in the way that they maybe couldn't in a New York, London, LA, whatever. A hundred percent. I think I saw a tweet from like DJ Haram kind of speaking on this as well. Like, like definitely like pro boycott, but like really like curious about how this kind of restructures the whole scene. It's such a centerpiece, mm. like it is the like middle in my opinion of like it's like a the touring like station <laughs> um and it has a you know incomparable club scene um so i'm really interested too to see what happens here um um, I've got a completely different question. <laughs> Great. I'm just going to put that. To cry, so just going to put the misery it. on. Pause there. <laughs> well, yeah, let's maybe. move on from Berlin. <laughs> let's let's see what this throws up. But um, I really like asking people this question: uh, What was teenage Frankie like? <laughs> oh my God. How did music fit into your life back then? I actually didn't come from a real musical family. Um, you know, I grew up with my my single mother. We, my mum and my brother and I, it was just the three of us. Um, you know, we had many, 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 many hardships, and so we didn't really have money, money, many, many monies. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, we had like three CDs in the house growing up. Uh, namely, I could, what I mean, three they? or four. What were they? <laughs> um, TLC. Crazy, sexy, cool. Mary J. Blige, My Life, Tony Braxton, um, and there was a couple others as well. Tracy Chapman. Um, I mean, they're really good CDs, at least. <laughs> they're really, really top tier <laughs> like, records. Yeah. <laughs> really good. And then there's also Kenny G, Breathless, one of his um. records. So that was another one, which is kind of I didn't listen to that one actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I kind of, I don't know, I was a really emotional, emotional teen. I'd listen to Mary J. Blige on my own in my room and just start crying to her songs and like imagining life outside of my little room and, you know, that kind of thing, which I think maybe some of us can relate to, maybe not, but um, really felt her words, even though she was like going through like a coke addiction or something. But I was just sitting in my room connecting <laughs> um but she have you know her words were uh, really actually now i've learned from a place of real deep like struggle and trauma um which is like it's interesting isn't it to think about you like connecting with some like raw emotion of somebody like that as a young a young teen and not actually knowing what it have any context of what she's going through but having a feel still feeling really sympathetic to this person so um I don't know, you, you, those kind of things stick with you. And I think that has remained with me in terms of listening to R&B music. Like, that's one of my favourite genres, I would say. Um, but yeah, the, 
but in terms of like, like there was a really big pivot when I learned about other music, which was when I had a really big crush on a friend of mine who's still a friend of mine <laughs> um, when I was like 16. Um, and he, he had a car and like loved music, he was in a band and all this stuff. And he was the first per. he just was just like, I loved music, like in a way that I couldn't, didn't really understand. And I still sometimes don't understand this either because I see the way some people love and are immersed in music. And it's definitely different for me, I would say. I am immersed in creating spaces for music, but music, um, that's been something that I feel like has been, I don't know, I'm, I'm still learning to understand and appreciate it, even at this age. Um, so, but he introduced me, like he showed me like Aphex Twin and Bjork, and I was like, wow, couldn't believe it what was what I was hearing. Um, it truly, truly blew me away. He showed me Lauren Hill, um, one track in particular, uh, the song with her and D'Angelo, Nothing Even Matters. Like, I will never forget the first time I heard that. And I think I was also just moved by the way he was moved by the music and like watching the power of what it can do to people and like how profound people feel it was so moving to me that like I got addicted to like wanting to like listen to music like that. So I started loving like Aphex and like Bjork. I got really into Bjork. Um, uh, Vespertine is like one of my favorite records of all time. So I just got really, I was like, she's so weird, but I feel every word that she's saying, like, what the hell? You know, like, what the hell is she talking about? But I just love it, you know? <laughs> I get, but it was like, you know, I don't know. I, I found a new world of things. So, and I think that, that, intro, that those early introductions thing, I mean, there was so much other music that he introduced me to, Radiohead as well, but like, it, um, but then there was also a pro I didn't, but I didn't really go clubbing or anything like that. Like I was very, very scared teenage, teenage girl. I was very, very scared. I, I, I didn't, I was very scared of like dating. Um, I was very scared of going out, getting drunk, didn't get wasted. I was really nervous. Um, I was actually kind of the perfect daughter because my mum was never scared about anywhere I was. I was just never. <laughs> she's like, Frankie's fine. She's she's crying. Yeah, she's exactly. Like, she's, exactly. <laughs> she's no trouble. Exactly. Literally no trouble. <laughs> she didn't have any problems with me, you know, so, which I think she was, I think that was a great relief to her. Did you end up having a big rebellion then later on? Yeah, but not, my mum didn't really know, you, pay any attention no, no, to no. that. Not rebelling, <laughs> but just finally breaking loose. A hundred percent. I think mm. um, at, at university, I went to University of Sussex and the, um, behind the, behind the school, they would throw raves, like free parties. Never been to a rave in my life, but a lot of the kids there, they'd all taken like year abroad. So they're all kind of like wealthy from North London. I was not like that, mostly white kids, but they had all been pretty seasoned in like taking drugs for the first time and like listening to it. They were like, cool, you know? And I remember <laughs> wandering into this like field and I was just like, oh, <laughs> I was so scared. Like this shit was scary. What was the music? <laughs> remember it was like probably like i think there was like 
I don't, I don't know, but I do remember one definitive moment. Okay, so when I, well, I took ecstasy for the first time that year in my 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 um, at university, and it, that was a really really pivotal moment in my life for me. Honestly, yeah, it, been that. I, it, I, <laughs> I think that's a fairly common experience. <laughs> it is. It's great. I mean, it opened up my mind. But, you know, it really well, opened my is, mind, bro. If someone's <laughs> suffering from fear, then I can imagine it might have actually... Exactly, yeah, I stopped being yeah. scared. <laughs> and I actually went to my my friends who were like more like seasoned ravers who I ended up being friends with. They took me to Rain Dance in London, which was which used to happen. Ooh, under, okay. That was my first experience of ecstasy was at Rain Dance. And I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> that club was insane. SE1. Um... Yeah, that's that was my first experience, and then after that, went back to the field raves and was like, I can do this now. And I remember the sun coming up, and then playing Aphex Twin, Window Liquor, and I was like, Oh my god! Like, I know this one. Full I know this one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was just like my just, exact full circle, and just like. Blue, just the whole moment just blew me. It was just so beautiful. I just couldn't believe what what was happening. It was great. So I kind of knew about the Sussex stuff because I I listened to a lot of well maybe not. A lot. I've listened to I think every podcast you've been on as oh um, Jesus. But no, like so I I was curious because obviously we were originally going to do this interview in London last year. We had to reschedule. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned on a few of them, though they were all quite old. I think that you'd historically had a pretty rough relationship with the UK and you didn't particularly like going back there. Um, but those were a few years old. So I was just curious mm-hmm. as to, is that still the case when you come back to London or are you just, are you fully assimilated US now? I think a lot of my disdain for London just comes from a lot of hardships and traumatic experiences from being there as a young, young, young woman, young girl. Um, you know, London, you know, growing up in London was a place that was like, that I felt like I was told I was ugly and like not smart. So that I still have a, like a grudge against that mm. being my experience as a kid. So it's like, I've actually had to kind of learn how to like re-love London, which has actually been kind of awesome. Um, I think in my, my more recent visits, I've actually really, really enjoyed my time there. And I've actually, it's actually contradicted a lot of a lot of my previous like grudges against it. Like a lot of people have been very like kind to me. Um, so I'm I'm in a I'm in a better place with it. <laughs> um, and and also it also it, it's it's also given me a lot too, you know? Like we've done we've done a lot of disc woman stuff there too. Like people really, really, really absorbed it there and like loved it. So um, like, I, I, I mean, I can't only be really grateful for that, uh, but you know, London, yeah, it's a, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a comp- complex place. <laughs> Are you an American now? Like, do you still have sort of culture clash moments of being like, a Brit abroad, or are you just in, in the mind? I love that. A Brit moment. abroad, Brits abroad. It sounds like a show, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I would watch that, by the way. Um, so, 
Yeah, I I am actually technically I am actually in America now. I have my U.S. passport, but I have dual citizenship, so both. Um, uh, so yeah, fortunate in that regard. Um, I mean, maybe some maybe would disagree with that, but still, I guess I am. Um, I mean, I've lived in New York since two thousand and nine, so it's almost been fifteen years, which is kind of absurd. It will be fifteen years this summer, which is crazy. Um, I don't know how my accent sounds to you guys, but for most Americans, I still sound pretty British. Surprisingly so. British, I would say. Yeah. You're doing well. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Normally, I think people have like softened their T's a lot by now, but you still got uh-huh. it. So. Yeah, I, yeah, I think maybe certain things maybe sound like that, but I think I, I, yeah, it hasn't really got away. But so I'm constantly asked like where you're from. And I think there's always a sense of like, excuse me I've lived here for 15 years like don't this is a basic question you know (laughs) I actually would say I mostly get it from British people are like oh my god you're English and I'm like (laughs) you know (laughs) I'm like what are we gonna bond on (laughs) I don't know (laughs) traitors traitors that's true there we go Exactly. That's a good thing, actually. That's the, that's the best thing to come out of England in a long fucking time. So there we go. What's your What's your sort of relationship with the club like at the moment? Are you Would you still go out out like off 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 your own back, or is it more just like work stuff, going to see people that you know? I go out a lot less than I used to. Um, but you know, as as you as you get older. You know, your relationships to spaces and drinking and drug taking and all these kind of things become, um, you know, they become a bigger thing to have to think about. You know, I found it when I was like the booker at Bossa, for instance, it was hard for me to be in the space without drinking or something. And I don't want that to be like what I have to do to be in those spaces, you know. Um, and that to be my only option in there. So I just have have a lot of like, I want to <laughs> stay alive and feel good and mentally well. I think those are real big like uh, focuses for me. So and often that isn't compatible with being out at the club and being out late. Uh, so I'm just trying to, because I mean, honestly, if I was out all the time, I wouldn't be able to do or plan dweller um like I have to it's really serious so I have to like take it seriously and one of the things about that is like having my head screwed on right at the moment um like currently I'm like completely sober um and it I mean and that's why you know when I you know when we chatted earlier that I feel like I'm actually having a good week where I don't feel as like stressed because I do think I'm able to like manage stuff. And I think it really is hard. I think it's not as hard, it's not hard for everybody, but it's really hard for me to have a fine line between to know how to manage going out and also having a healthy lifestyle. For me, they're often quite incompatible. Um, But, you know, I have, addiction in my family I have addictive tendencies so I have to like remove myself from spaces sometimes to to manage that um so yeah it's 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 a push and pull um 
it's really, really tough. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it can be really, really dangerous place as well. So, um, you know, once you've been in the scene for so long, it's kind of like you really see the good, the bad and the ugly. And yeah, um, yeah it becomes you just want to uh, protect yourself and self-preserve. Um, but I also feel guilt about that sometimes because I want to I want to see more things. I want to be out more. I want to. It's important to like go support friends. It's important to um, see who the new DJs are or whatever. Like it's like I need to also be doing that as well. So totally. And then they're like, I'm on at 4 a.m. You're like, great. <laughs> cool. The amount of times see I that? imagine we've all had that conversation. <laughs> I'm like fuck. I mean, New Year's Eve. I slept actually. I slept on New Year's Eve, and then I woke up at seven, and then I went to go and see Juliana B to B Jazz at like nine a.m. Perfect. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. yeah, that's that's classy. <laughs> Am I right in saying that this year will be the tenth anniversary of Disc Woman? Is you correct? are right. Yeah, I actually, was just talking about this. Well, I mean, (laughs) one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you is because there was a moment, you know, uh, sort of like five, six years ago when Disc Woman was getting like so much press across the board. You know, you were very like present, quite rightly, and doing something that felt very like bold, very, very special. Um, But of course, you know there are there are cycles and you're you're an institution now rather than kind of the hot new thing or whatever um and that's 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 one reason why we I think that's a a kind of criterion that we're looking for for people to talk to as well where it's like you've actually been around a bit and you kind of got your bearings fully so yeah how how has Disc Woman evolved since that moment like where where are we now a decade into this project yeah, for sure. I really appreciate that framing as well because it is kind of so cyclical. You know, you're like kind of in this like, you know, limelight spot of talking about these issues and it kind of, you know, everything moves on to the next thing. And that's kind of what this industry is like, you know, it's so um, fleeting everything. Uh, but but it was also, it's just like, it's hard, it's hard to sustain that kind of thing as well. Like, it's like, what do you... We're just gonna keep on like talking, say, making the same points over and over again, like consistently. Like it's, it's a, it's, it's kind of exhausting. And also, I think mo- most of all, I think where things really like shifted for me um, was at the beginning of the pandemic, where we got absolutely like slaughtered online for um, asking for donations, like. I felt really low because you feel like you put in so much goodwill (laughs) and that's how you get treated after all that you feel like you've done, you know? And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to put this in anymore, actually. I don't want to put in this time. I don't want to give more of myself that I've already, I've given so much of myself for this. I've been... And also so much time where you've been working for free, you know? Exactly. And then like you dare dare to ask for something back and it's just like... Yeah, exactly. And then just like the things people said were just so cruel, you know? And I'm like, wow. The way people just turn on you is 
I don't want anything to do with any of these people. I don't want to give it myself to anybody anymore. And that's kind of what even that's kind of why what shifted my focus into honing more into Dweller, you know, we were talking earlier about like justice and something that people can't touch, you know, it, it got even more like, fuck y'all. I don't, we don't need y'all anyway. I don't need any of you guys, you know, like I don't need any of this. Um, so I'm going to build, we're going to build our own thing. And you know, that's where the blog started and everything, you know, that, it's kind of, and it's, that's felt more comfortable for sure. I think, you know, when you're in that kind of sort of limelight moment of like talking about these issues, you're kind of like a product for people a lot of the time. Like you become, uh, uh, you're like, oh, we can tap in them. They'll talk about the women thing that we want to talk about, you know? So you, you that's what you become. You're not really, um, and and I think and that and I think in the moment in the pandemic and that's where I kind of realised what, what was happening. I'm not people actually don't see me at all. Um and that was really yeah, that really, really sucked. Uh but it's also quite it's but it was also like I'm glad that that happened because I feel like I I I kind of know know where I stand more, you know, and I think I can be way more protective um, and not give and have way better boundaries in this place. Give us your take then on New York club culture right now, because it's interesting to think. I mean, this came up when we spoke to Nick and Tony, but actually the first time I ever went to New York was in, I think, 2009. And the dance music options were very, very different, very different then. Like, I mean, uh, you know, to th- when... Bossa opened in 2012, there was nothing around that neighborhood at all. Right. Hmm. Like, there was absolutely nothing. And now it's like, a, you know, the centerpiece of like five or six different clubs. Like, there's just so much. Um, it's, I mean, it's really, really thriving. Um, it's a shame I don't go out that much to experience it, but. <laughs> But it is thriving. Because <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that about London right now. I don't think, honestly. What like, would you say about London at the moment? I mean, there are a couple of places that I enjoy going to, um, but I don't know that it has enough small venues that are good. You know, like I really like going to Fold. I like the cause. They feel kind of weird in their own ways. They have their own personalities, and I feel like you get left alone, which is my top demand for a club usually. Um, but yeah, in terms of like a smaller, say, kind of bossa sized space, I, I just, I don't know that there are that many places to throw a good small party. I, I think Tom agrees with me. On no, there's definitely not. And I think <laughs> another, another big factor with London actually is like 10 years ago where Dawson was the epicenter of everything. Mm-hmm. Do you Because there are still loads of good venues in London. There are good I guess it's more good venues that are in that like 300 to 400 cap rather than like 100 cap, but they do exist. Um, but I guess the big issue was when everything kind of centered around Dawson and Shoreditch, all those venues were really near each other. So you could like, I was in New York three times right. the other year, um, two years ago. And it was like, I was like, wow, people club hop here. I'd meet right. someone and we'd go catch someone set at Rash and then go to whatever Paragon. And then nowadays, and that, doesn't happen in london or it happens very rarely because 
everything is either, it seems like at the moment, everything is either Southeast or Northeast. So there's actually not like, and everyone kind of lives either Southeast or Northeast, but it's an hour journey from each other. So everyone kind of congregates in their space, but there's not a central point where people can meet and it's like a half hour journey for your average person, our age or whatever. That's kind of my take on why London clubbing feels weirdly stale at the moment, despite there actually being quite a lot of good clubs. But I would also say that one problem we obviously have is how much harder it is for like a 24 year old who has maybe just come out of uni or something to just throw a night. Like it's basically financially impossible. Um, Mm. But how do people do that in New York? Like, how is that even possible? It's even more expensive, isn't it? But I do feel like a factor, sorry sorry to interject, but I do think it's, it's probably quite crucial to this maybe is that in my experience, and Frankie, you probably have, you, you definitely have more experience of this, but like the minute anyone is doing anything in London, they're snapped up by an agency. And a lot of the agencies in the UK are not good and don't really, they clearly do have an understanding, but I think a lot of the time don't care about what it's like being a promoter, trying to throw a club night to, you know, a hundred cap venue. Whereas I feel like in my experience of New York, at least like it's just easier to book nights with like up and coming artists who maybe aren't represented and it just feels like a bigger talent pool of people that are accessible yeah um which doesn't yeah it feels like the minute anyone's doing anything here they get snapped up and then that agent will be like well you can only play london twice a year now and it's going to be at fabric right. times god what a buzzkill i know seriously i hate that shit um yeah i mean i think on your point about kind of like club hopping i think that's really really important important when we're talking about this because you know new york what one of its benefits is that it does have a 24-hour public transport system so people can get around and it's also cheaper to take the train here than it is in london as well you know it's two dollars 90 to go anywhere on any Mm. to anywhere which is drastically different i think than um London. But like, but we do on. have 24-hour public transport, really, don't kind we? I of. mean, we ca- there's quite a few lines that run 24 hours at the weekend, and the buses do function. But I don't Frankie's think it's right, it excuse. is more expensive. It's a lot more expensive. <laughs> but I would say that within the club's scenes in Brooklyn, it's probably not an hour to get from one place to another. Yeah. And you probably yeah. wouldn't take a bus. So, like, you know, there's lo- lots of clubs in Ridgewood, there's lots of clubs in Bushwick, um... And if you're just kind of going between those two, it's like very local, the whole scene. So once you're in it, you kind of just kind of, kind of just jump around and stay in it. Um, I think London's a little bit more spread out than that. Uh, so I think that's quite hard. I think that's quite hard, like financially for people as well to kind of mm. um, to do that. <laughs> um, so does that difference? I think when you're talking about booking nights, like and the cost of that, for instance, like, I mean, booking a night at Bossa is essentially free. I mean, you just need to, like, if you do, just say you're wanting to, like, when I was booking there, I was book, we, the club functions seven days a week. So if you're kind of a young DJ wanting to get into it and you just get, like, a Monday night at Bossa, yeah. 
you can kind of do your own thing and all you you get you know you don't get paid a lot but you get a percentage of the bar but you still have like a lot of creative license to do what you want and put on certain friends and there's also such a big talent pool like you say who like be happy to like play on a Monday sometimes, you know, like maybe you'll see like Goucher Lust work play on like a Tuesday, you know, like things like this, like, because they're just, because also people love that club as well. I mean, but boss has been a big talent pool. Like I've met so many people there. Um, just, you know, so many artists that have just like really have risen so much, um, have, you know, I've, they, they, I met, I met them there. Uh, so, um, people see that kind of like template and they're like, okay, well, Bossa is a reputable place for me to like throw an event, even on a Tuesday, like that's fun, you know, and it, it will pop and sometimes it will pop off on a Tuesday, you know? So I think like Emma and Fang's techno feminism, I think it started on a Tuesday maybe. Right. And then it kind of just like worked its way up to like a Friday or a Saturday. Um, but that built so much of her identity around her as an artist, you know. So it's not just about like getting people in the door, but it's about people like seeing your taste and like seeing your like perspective. And you can really define it and like hone that in, I think, doing like a Tuesday club night where you're not having to spend really any of your own money. Yeah. And like, I think that's shit's punk and cool like i like that a lot um so that was really fun to do and work with people like that when i was booking them well i think if you also look back through like i was gonna say the history of dance music but even like the modern history there's so many like really important just like midweek parties right um historically and i mean like in london there were tons there was you know there was co-op there was forward there was whatever and it's like those don't really exist anymore like most clubs here now aren't open or, you know, if maybe they're open as like a bar, but you don't have nights until like Thursday at the earliest right. of the week. And that makes it really hard for something like techno feminism to thrive because you need to go through those. You need to go through that run where it's like the night's not going to be busy every week but, right. or every month, but you just keep it going and it builds up over time. And I think like exactly. new nights and new promoters aren't given those chances in London at the moment. That's a shame. It's a real shame because it's like a place where you flourish, like, creatively like um frankie i don't know how many previous episodes you've listened to if any but we always end up talking about films <laughs> great I love and like that. i say you're a letterbox power user and um and former <laughs> film columnist actually or maybe current film columnist on hiatus i'm not sure oh yes <laughs> i'm on a long hiatus. the last time i wrote about films on dweller was like two years ago so yeah right there it's you been go. a long break <laughs> um so tell our listeners what are the what are the best and worst films you've watched recently? What would be your your recent recommend and a recent oh avoid God, at all I'm costs? Open... Um, you can open up Letterboxd, it's fine. Let me open up Letterboxd because I forget. I have a terrible memory. Okay. I'm going to take this opportunity to say that I'm Venga Chow on Letterboxd. Tom, what are you? Oh, are we doing this? Are we... I we mean, already follow not? each other, Tom and I, but I need yeah. to... I need to... I'm Frankie Fat I... Gold on Letterboxd, so follow me. I'm Loco Action. Follow all three of us. Yeah. I'm getting into <laughs> it. I'm doing the reviews. I, I'm so... obsessed with it. It's so You're nice. really okay, good on what... it. <laughs> yeah. Me? <laughs> yeah. I've added quite um, a lot of stuff to my watch list from your From me? Oh, nice. 100%. Okay. Last week I watched um, 
a great movie called Glen Gary Glen Ross. Uh, oh, I saw that, that was, pop up. I was, it was so good. I've I mean, not seen it for really, a long time, but I love that movie. <laughs> I love that movie. It's so funny. I mean, you're just kind of like watching these white dudes have a meltdown about not being able to reach their like sales commissions, you know, but it's, but you get invested, like you're sad for these guys, you know, and it's just like Jack Lemon. Oh my God. He's so good. Yeah, he's um, incredible, got goosebumps from his performance. It's just amazing. So that was really great. Um, we should plug, don't you have a letterbox list that is like white men falling apart? <laughs> I have one list called The Plight of White Men. That's it. <laughs> and and on that list I have... That's like most films. About, about <laughs> Schmidt, which I love this movie. Oh, yeah. About Schmidt is the same guy who did this new film, The Holdovers, Alexander Payne. I really, really like his movies, but Holdovers wasn't didn't hit as hard for me, but um, yeah, I still appreciated him. About Schmidt, I love this movie. This performance by Jack Jack Nicholson as this um, retired man just trying to find himself uh, is utterly amusing and also just so deeply sad. Um, so it's like quite a literal plight of this man who's been this top as exec, not knowing what to do with his time outside of business. You know, um, I have adaptation on him. Movie a- Happiness. Have you guys seen this movie? Um, no, I know adaptation, but I'm not familiar with that. Uh, yeah, well, maybe I shouldn't tell you, but just dive in. <laughs> it's it's an inc- I I think it's an incredible piece of cinema. Uh, I watched it when I was quite young, actually, and I and I remember the material in it is re- it's, it's some of it is really really dark. Um, so it's not really for everybody, but I remember just like the positioning of like who you empathise with in, or who you are forced to empathise with, uh, regardless of their, you know, um, what they're doing <laughs> in this movie. is really interesting um, to watch. You, you change your subjectivity and you're just like... And then the movie Falling Down with Michael Douglas. Oh, yeah. Have you seen that? <laughs> That's a white man with a plight right there. <laughs> That's <laughs> That is white blight. I I really that was great, and I love me a Michael D- Douglas dramatic performance. <laughs> Hell yeah, Wall Street. I love that movie. I yeah, would watch God. a lot of his movie. He's just like I don't know what a weirdo. Really, really got pissed off by House of Gucci. Thought that was trash. Um, <laughs> I watched Were you this expecting terrible... it somehow to not be trashy? Yeah, I think I was like the whole thing. I don't I don't know. I just like I'm just like what a waste of waste of money. You know actually what was fucking trash, which I hated, was Babylon. I really hated that movie. I oh yeah, I've not bothered. Obs- obscene waste of money. I'm just I think I get offended by the amount of money these movies cost to create absolute garbage. Yeah. Um like, what, what could we use that funds for, you know? Yeah. If only um, there were other causes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd, I'd actually just totally forgotten what it was. But, yeah, it's the Damien Chazelle thing, isn't oh, it? Oh, I yeah. cannot it's stand so that rubbish. guy. No, That's no. Terrible movie. He, he did, makes I also hated La La Land. Horrible. Oh, that was awful. Yeah. Again, just yeah. never bothered. Whip, I have no whiplash. interest in whip, watching either. Oh, Whiplash, whiplash as well. Film. I didn't like oh, did that either. Did you do Whiplash? I don't yeah. like it. <laughs> You're like, oh. I think, I think Whiplash is fine. 
It's not. It's the best one out of the three. In it's my, definitely yeah, the best one. I think I misread all of it because I remember really agreeing with the guy when he broke up with his girlfriend because he needed to take his music more seriously and everyone was like, ugh, what a piece of shit. And I was like, I don't understand what I meant to think about this film. Isn't he right to concentrate on his musical passions? <laughs> right, like, right, right. It's, I've read this all wrong. You've not communicated it to me properly. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I guess I'd, I guess I'd finish by giving a, a special shout out to the British movie, Rye Lane. It was beautiful. Love yeah. Oh, yes. It was really with, great. I'm really um, happy to... It looks like it might win a load of awards as well. Yeah, uh, the lead actress uh, Vivian Oprah, I think her name is. Yes, Vivian yeah. Oprah. She, she just got nominated for yeah. BAFTA, right? Yeah. Great. Yeah, so exciting. I just, it was just, uh, I want to see it again. It was just such a feel-good movie, and so I feel like those are like so fleeting. Those kind of films. So um, rare. To, yeah. 100%. It's rare to feel that like warmth in cinema sometimes. Yes. So. That was great. Lovely pick. Right. We made it. Feels like a good note to end it on. Thank you so much, Frankie. Of course. Thank you, guys. Sorry about the technical Thank you for hitches. persevering. Oh, I think yeah. I think they were at both ends, to be fair. Yeah. Um, but we made it. We did yeah, make thank it. Thank you so much. Of course.